I wonder if I said uh, this morning to you the word church, I wonder what would come into your mind. Perhaps a beautiful old building, perhaps this week bad-tempered wrangling in the political institution, Um, perhaps many in our society, I suspect, would imagine an elderly, dwindling group of people huddling on old pews. It's not surprising, to be honest, that many people today, though they're still looking for something spiritual, they don't look in churches. Even amongst Christians, actually, church gets mixed reviews. Every church leader that I know says there is a a growing proportion of people um, associated with their church who are occasional attenders, some of them perhaps even regular attenders, but who keep church at arm's length. We can be Christians, they say, without needing to get embroiled in church. Increasing number get their spiritual food from the internet and their encouragement from small groups of Christian friends. And in our world of uh, paedophile priests and bitter church politics, on the one hand, and Facebook groups, podcasts, and ever-increasing mobility on the other. It's tempting to get rid of that old institution and go for new ways of being Christians. New ways that are not encumbered by the word church. In many ways, I have a lot of sympathy with those people. An awful lot of what we conventionally think of when we um, imagine church, to be honest, only has a rather tenuous link to the Bible. And I often wonder about the energy that could be released if Christians just abandoned their interminable synods and their, their fundraising campaigns for decaying ancient monuments and poured all of that energy into focused gospel living. It could be really liberating for the church in the UK. But the New Testament says we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The New Testament has a massively strong emphasis on church. Not buildings, but people. Crucially, though, not just little groups of friends meeting in a sort of informal, egalitarian way for mutual support but diverse groups of people who wouldn't otherwise choose to associate together, locked together in a deep covenantal commitment with leaders and mutual accountability. You know, our, our, our age is deeply suspicious of the abuses that are associated with church, and rightly so. But we long for community. People don't realize that actually, in order to achieve true community, rather than just casual gatherings of friends, there needs to be a a deep commitment amongst diverse people to function together in a community called church. Almost every New Testament letter is written in part at least to actually hold a diverse church 
together. And 1 Peter is no exception. Uh, If you've been here the last few weeks, uh, we've been looking through 1 Peter, and we have seen that from the beginning, he addresses Christians as uh, over a wide region, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, former northern Turkey, over this wide region, he addresses them as scattered exiles. They are foreigners in this world now because they belong to God and they are scattered because they don't truly have a stable home in this world. And he has been um, wanting to, to keep them strong and joyful and fruitful as believers. What does he do for them? Well, he does a number of things. He he wants to strengthen their biblical understanding because he knows that will keep them. He wants to help them to understand how to relate in this now hostile world to authorities, to employers, to neighbours, to uh, husbands and wives together. He tells them an awful lot about that. He tells them overall how to deal with suffering and difficulty in this world as they live. But he ends in a massively important place, not by accident, but by design. He ends in 1 Peter 5 here by telling them how to live together as churches. Those scattered exiles will not survive as totally isolated individuals in the world. He um, teaches them how to gather together into mutually committed, accountable uh, communities called churches. There they will thrive. There they will be able to work together to witness to the world. So what Peter, Peter tells us then in 1 Peter 5, is very, very important. Not just for them, but for us. Because we too live as people, uh, as Christians, set apart slightly from this world. The world no longer, Britain no longer tries to pretend it is Christian. There is a difference between people who who commit to following Christ and the rest of the world. And that introduces tensions. And uh, believers today will only live live, um, fruitful Christian lives, says the Bible, as they meet together in places like this, as they covenant together to live in community. And that, frankly, is particularly important to us locally. Um, We've already uh, uh, alluded to it. There's an enormous amount going on in the church at the moment. John Fenning last week, didn't he, said that... um, we were embarking on a, a plan for growth that, which was more ambitious than anything he'd seen in his 28 years. Um, it's not more ambitious than anything I've seen in my slightly more than 28 years, but, um, uh, but it is still ambitious. We have launched Cowley Church Community to be a different um, uh, a group. At the moment, a missional small group, but in time we are praying it will grow into an independent church that can reach uh, uh, Central Cowley. And, and then somewhat um, from left field, I have to admit, um, 
uh, I, I felt as uh, I was praying in our time of prayer and fasting earlier in the year that uh, the Lord's calling on my life was to to um, go in a, a in a different direction and to establish a new church in the heart of Oxford, and uh, uh, we as well as elders are thinking very very hard about how to pursue and develop our uh, vision here uh, for, for Maudlin Road to be a hub for mission and ministry in East Oxford and beyond. We are not walking away from that commitment in any sense. And there are very actually exciting developments on that that I hope we will be able to share uh, with, with the church soon. Actually, I, I, I believe that in the midst of all of, all of this, that God is abundantly blessing us through this sort of painful, sacrificial, gospel-focused set of plans. If you've been here for a while, you'd be aware, we have never been so full. If we weren't already planning to plant a church, we would have to be really getting our minds around it now because we have more or less filled the hall. There is very little space for expansion. And if you do not make plans at that stage to, to, to diversify and grow, churches, churches plateau, stagnate and decline again and again. And uh, there's massive good news um, in the finances too. Our finances have never been so strong. We are seeing a regular st- trickle of, uh, uh, of conversions. The, um, uh, the so far the one baptism that we're having at, um, uh, 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 at the beginning of December is, is the tip of an iceberg of, of, some, of what God is doing, actually, amongst us. It is a very exciting time to be in Magdalen Road. Um, we, have, we are conscious that, that, that actually... The, 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 the plans as they are going ahead are very stretching and we have set in place some checks and balances that you need to, uh, 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 that we need to be aware of. That the Cowley, um, uh, church community, we are allowing to grow at its own pace. We are not setting a, uh, a deadline by which it must be, um, independent. We don't feel that that's the right thing to do. And that means that in the short term, we still benefit from the leadership of Tim Guest uh, in in the church as a whole and newly co-opted Andy Moore, who you met just a moment ago, father of Reuben. That, that That will help us as we move forward. And we've also been very clear from the beginning that, that, um, uh, that this plan to plant the new church, which is now called Trinity Church, you may have noticed on the, um, uh, on the overhead, um, uh, can't be extensively resourced by Magdalen Road. Um, uh, that, that would be just too much to expect the church to do. So we're seeking outside uh, resources to support that. And uh, to be honest, the, the sacrifice that you're making is allowing me in time to move across to that. And of course, anyone else who feels the Lord's calling them uh, to that. So we've tried in the midst of ambitious development and growth, to try and set some limits and not be ridiculously over-ambitious. But it is stretching. And we need then to reflect, perhaps, with Peter on what will keep us healthy as one church over a number of years becomes three, we pray. 
What are the things that will help us to function and continue to function healthily as diverse churches? Future of the gospel, Peter is convinced in Inner East Oxford, in Cowley, and in the centre of the, of the city, in part or at least of our role in spreading the gospel depends on healthy community life. We're going to look at it, not quite in the order that Peter does, because I just thought it would work better this, this way around. We're going to look at what Peter says to church members about belonging to church. And then we're going to look at what Peter says to elders and then what Peter says to us all. So what does he say to members of a church? Submit humbly, he says, verse 5. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourself to your elders, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Many, many translations, including the old NIV, translated the recipients of this command as young men. You young men, um, uh, it said, submit to, to your elders. Um, the NIV, as you'll see, has gone over to just saying, saying young people, though the, though the noun is masculine, it doesn't necessarily need to imply that it's just talking to young men in the same way that sometimes when we talk about men of England, it doesn't mean only the ones with Y chromosomes, it means human beings in general. Actually, many commentators go a step further than that. They've pointed out that there's another word that could have been used which would unambiguously meant people who are one are young in years. And Peter doesn't use that. And they suggest that he's using uh, the, this other word simply to contrast with elders from verse 1. So, so, so uh, just as the word elders has a formal sense of meaning older people, but actually doesn't necessarily mean just the older people, it means the group of, of leaders within the church. So they suggest the youngers is not primarily about age, but is about people who, who, who aren't the leaders of the church. And that's how I'm going to read it um, uh, this morning, as Peter addressing, in fact, those who are not leaders, the general members of the church. What should they do, he says? Submit to elders. A constant theme, actually, not a very, not a very um, palatable one in the 21st century, but here, here it's a constant theme in 1 Peter. Submit to authorities, all authorities, he says in 2.13. Submit to slaves, submit to masters, he says in 2.18. Wives, submit to husbands, he says in 3 verse 1. Every, everything, everyone and everything should be submitted to God, he says in 3 verse 22. He said it again and again and again, and here he says it now amongst the family believer, of believers. Peter knows that if everyone is their own master, then the world will be a world of chaos, especially the church. We have to learn to act together. We have to learn to set aside some people to bear ultimate responsibility for the community and then let them do that, he says. 
That, that call to submit in, 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 um, as elsewhere is not absolute. There are checks and balances. We here have a church membership here to give a mechanism whereby church members as a whole can, can challenge the elders as necessary and where the elders, a group that the elders can go to, to consult and to listen and hear. And that's a very active part of our, our life together. But the general attitude is really clear. All of you, he says, verse 5, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. We have a God, says Peter, who watches and who acts. He sees into hearts and he sees pride and humility, and he responds to both of those. To the humble, he gives grace. To the proud, he opposes them. I've been around long enough in, uh, in church circles to see that happening, and it is... Scary sometimes. There is a certain kind of assertive person who, 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 who pushes their views in, in the church and can cause in the short term enormous um, problems. Now that's not that discussion and questioning is forbidden in churches, far from it. There is a strong sense in the New Testament of believers gathering together to pray, to consider the scriptures, to teach and admonishing one another. That from the beginning the church was a place of sort of active conversation and prayer to, uh, uh, together as God's people. But there is, a, there is a certain kind of person who will not listen, who is divisive who will not accept anything but their own way. And I have seen more times than I would care to such people burning brightly, causing significant trouble, and falling. It's almost as if God lets them go for a while, at least. As I reflect on the number of times that I've seen that, I have to say there is a certain fear of God in my heart that arises. Anyone who's been around in church for a decade or more will have seen this kind of thing happening. And it is a deeply ominous thing to hear God opposes the proud. But it is a deeply positive thing to see that he exalts the humble. He gives, he shows favor to the humble. Then verse 6, humble yourself, yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. 
the most loved, most respected, and in the long term most listened to members of any church are those who do not push themselves forward, who pray faithfully, who honour leaders, who deeply trust Christ, who are patient and kind and gentle, who are not pushy, not self-assertive, not proud, and actually you see them over time rising to the top and they are sought out. It is the way that God works. And what drives that assertiveness? What what drives that pride? It's very interesting what Peter adds on as an addendum, verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Maybe that pushiness is actually from anxiety. If I let this thing go the way I don't want it to go, well, I'll be out of control. Well, you always were. You have a God who is in control and a God who will not let you go as you entrust yourself to him. He cares for you. That is such an important understanding of our our inner motivation, let me say, more widely than just in the life of church. We try to grab control, we try to assert ourselves, we, we, we push ourselves forward, we, we, we climb the slippery pole with incredible aggression, we manipulate other people's, we, we, we do a whole range of things because inside I'm deeply anxious and insecure. And I feel unless I do grasp that next pay rise, unless I, unless, unless I do push that person aside, unless I do manipulate that girl to like me, unless I do whatever, then my life will fall apart. No, it will not if you are a believer. You have a God who cares for you. You have a God who so loved you, he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross to pay for every single one of your sins so that he could bring you to himself, now completely forgiven, and begin a relationship of love with you which will continue on into all eternity. That is how much he cares for you. Do you not think he will do well for you in your work? in your relationships, in the, in the place that you live, and in your church life? Cast all your cares on him. He cares for you. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of that God in the way that you live, and you'll see it. He'll lift you up. Push him aside and try and grasp everything for yourself. And you'll see that other side of God's character. And you don't want to see that. He opposes the proud. That's what he says to us then as church members. This is a vital thing which will hold the community together and 
Peter knows the communities of believers are the hope of this world. And then uh, we're doing it second, but he said it first. Elders, he says, serve humbly. Lead humbly. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Notice Peter doesn't put himself above them as an apostle, though in some senses he could have done. The apostle Paul often appeals to his apostleship, but Peter's got a different agenda here. He places along them along himself alongside them as fellow elders who have exactly the same, he has exactly the same hope as any of those elders who will share in God's glory. One extra qualification perhaps that he mentions is a witness of Christ's suffering. Not every uh, elder has been a witness of Christ's suffering, of course, but Peter had, Peter was there. It was the moment when he betrayed Jesus, of course, but he was there. Notice as well the emphasis then on sufferings. Not just a witness of Christ, a witness of Christ's sufferings. What's he saying? He's saying to elders, your essential calling is yes, to look forward to glory. You will share in his glory. But in the meantime, just as we've seen in Christ, we suffer. I, just a few weeks ago in an elders meeting, um, I took us to 2 Timothy 1 verse 8. Join me, says Paul to Timothy, in suffering for the gospel. That's the calling of church leadership. Eldership is not for wimps. It is tough. Church members, your elders work long hours. But more than just the long hours that they work, they have to search their hearts deeply. They have to deal with difficult, heartbreaking situations. They have to make painful decisions. That is the nature of the calling. Elders are called as well to be shepherds. Verse 2, be shepherds of God's flock that is under, under your care, watching over them. He says, contrary to the, the, the Christmas cards, shepherds didn't sit by warm little campfire, campfires cuddling lambs on a nice, uh, nice evening. They risked their lives uh, fighting wolves. They roamed the hillsides gathering in stragglers. They led their sheep um, through wilderness to rich pastors. I, I, I know you, you who are elders here, Peter addresses the elders personally in a public way and I'll do that a little this morning as well. I know you elders I know you sigh deeply at the mention of yet another um, elders meeting and uh, I, know, I have um, moments when I long for my formal comfortable life as a, a, as a vet but it is a great calling tough calling but a great calling 
says Peter. And it's one to be pursued with eagerness. Be shepherds of God's flock, not because you must, verse 2, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. I can hear elders saying, where am I going to get the dishonest gain from? And after all, the wages of an elder that I see are a few cups of coffee and a couple of digestive biscuits in, the, in, the, uh, in an elders meeting. That's about it. But there are other dishonest gains that we can pursue. Other sinful motives. It's possible to be eager to be on the inside, to be in the know. It's possible to be eager for power. It is possible to be eager for status. Peter says, no, be eager to serve. Though the, though the Bible says that we, we, rather elders, rule, that we have authority in the church, that we exercise power, here, says Peter, is how you exercise that power. Verse 3, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. We do not lead by diktat, we lead by example. That is so important for all of us to see. Even, even the Apostle Paul, though he often, often in his letters is absolutely clear and unambiguous about what a church should do, he seeks to persuade them to do it. He expects them to corporately respond. When, when, uh, when discipline is to be exercised in the church, Paul doesn't simply impose that discipline personally. He calls the church to endorse it. When in Corinth, false super-apostles are to be disowned as leaders, he doesn't come in and remove their license to preach. He calls the church as a whole to disown them. That is why here we exercise congregational government. Certainly elders have an important role, a particular role in decision making. And many decisions, are, frankly, are not of sufficient importance uh, to trouble the church with them. Some of them rightly need to be done in private because it's not, not appropriate for them to be dealt with publicly. Most people will be very, very glad that the elders do an enormous amount of work in private. However, ultimately, the leaders of any church rule by consensus in that church. They rule because the church as a whole has been persuaded this is the right thing to do. And therefore, elders rule by example. As examples to the flock. As men who have gone there first, who have followed Jesus Christ, who have set out on, on the path of Christian discipleship and so display that in an accountable way before the church that they are able to persuade the people of God that this is what the Lord wants us to do. Even the apostle didn't do more than that. That's why 
church members, we have First Tuesday meetings where we pray and discuss together. That's why we have church members meetings, why, that, why they are so important. We make decisions together under God. And over the, the last 15 years, though there have been some difficult moments, as there are in any church, we have forged a really good and strong bond, I think, between elders and the church, a bond of mutual trust. And that is something deeply precious. In church, you have an amazingly committed group of men for your elders. They have accepted significant cost in becoming elders. They deeply care about your welfare, the welfare of the flock, about your protection, about your nurture, about your spiritual nourishment, about your joy in the Lord. You would love to hear them praying for you, and we do, over time, pray for every single uh, committed member of the church by name. They're really committed to you. We, as elders, are committed to leading as God instructs us, as examples to the flock. My prayer is that as we now diversify over the next um, few years to, to being three congregations, that will be preserved and multiplied now in three places. Because then, says Peter, People will be nurtured. People will be nourished. The gospel will be preached. New people will come to faith. And the glory of Christ will be multiplied and magnified in Oxford. The hope of the world is local churches, not just casually committed together, but deeply, covenantally committed together to follow Christ. And elders, in particular... Here's your reward, verse 4. Then the chief, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory, glory that will never fade away. There is a great privilege in serving as a leader. Some of you here perhaps will be called to lead in time. Some of you here are starting to lead in home groups and the like. And perhaps you were a bit daunted by the, the emphasis that Peter uh, seems to have on, on, on suffering. But if you are a believer, that is as nothing to what God will bless you with as you set out to serve as a leader in his church. Elders, Lead humbly, says Peter. And then, to everyone. Resist the devil. It's not by accident. It is not separated from these instructions to, about how God's people function together. It is a massively important insight that Peter brings us. Be alert, verse 8, and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, 
because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Notice the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing that suffering, the same kind of suffering. What suffering? Well, here he says, the suffering of being ravaged by the devil. The devil is real. Don't, uh, don't believe his uh, PR that says he doesn't exist. And he is not just out there in the world, he is in churches. He works, says Peter, by stealth. He prowls. He works by intimidation. He roars. Remember the connection between um, bad behaviour in the church and anxiety earlier on. Well, here's what the devil does. He multiplies anxiety. He roars in our ears. I'm in control of this world. I'm in control of your life. When, when God says, no, he is in control of our life. And, his, and, and the devil's agenda is absolutely explicit. It is to destroy. He devours like a lion. Do not underestimate the spiritual battle that goes on in this world and especially rages when any church or any individual decides to stand up and say, we are really going to go for it with Christ. The roars get very loud. The prowling gets more intense, the desire to devour becomes focused on that spot. Do not underestimate then what Satan may want to do amongst us. Trust God though. What did Jesus say? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness And all these things will be given to you as well. Do not worry, said Jesus. He might well have said, do not listen to the roar of the lion, the devil. Trust Christ and step forward in faith. Now for some of us here, I'm conscious we always have visitors and we've got more visitors than usual. For some of us here, that has no relevance in terms of Uh, this church for you, but maybe it has significant relevance in your personal life. Maybe actually it is simply the reality that we do not need to be anxious. But as we entrust ourselves to God, our Saviour, he will keep us. Right? Maybe for some who are members of the church here, there's some specific issue for you personally. But for this church, I'm absolutely certain. Peter's last words to us, as he helps us to live out our faith in a world that is not sympathetic to Christianity any longer, if it ever was. His last words are, You need to be a healthy church. And that means members exercising humility 
in their life together. And that means leaders leading humbly. That means being aware of the devil's wiles. He loves to trick. He loves to intimidate because he loves to devour. 